It's been a wonderful time being a part of Spring Harvest, all of these, uh, all of these different settings, and I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, you know, this is the first time I've ever been able to attend Spring Harvest, but I can tell you that you have blessed me for a good many years. I have worshipped with you. Nobody worships like Spring Harvest. Am I right? And I can tell you, yeah, praise you, Lord. I can tell you that the DVDs, the CDs that come out of here, you are blessing little churches across Africa and Asia. I see you out there. You have, you have taught me through the teachers that have been a part of this. And so for me, it's a great joy to be here, to see it in person. You guys, this lovely, uh, lovely group of people who are followers of Jesus Christ coming here to, uh, to, to learn and to grow. How do we live out our faith in our world? I love all the little children in this place. All the happy families that I see in this place. How many of you have been run over by some of these scooters? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Get used to it. Heaven's going to be full of that. I'm thrilled to be here. I wish that my wife could be here. It used to be that Donna went with me everywhere that I was, uh, that I was speaking, and it was just nice to have somebody in the crowd that I knew was completely on my side, you know, in a sea of humanity that I didn't know most of them, there would be this one face that is looking at me with just, you know, she's, she's tracking. I, I, and <laughs> you women, you think you're so complicated. You're not. I could look at her and I knew exactly what was going through her head. She's thinking, my, but he's handsome. I, I knew that. Come on, I could, I could see it in her face. My, but he's smart. My, but he's articulate. Aren't I lucky to be married to him? I could just see it right there. You notice I'm talking past tense because that came to a screeching halt a few weeks ago. And I'll, I guess I'll have to tell you because it's, it's really not a pretty picture. But when we got married 35 years ago, we agreed no secrets. We're going to be completely open with each other. We'll say what we're thinking. It'll just be what are, what's going on in our hearts. After one year of being married to me, she comes to me and she says, Wes, turns out I need a little space all to myself, my own little secret. And I said, well, okay, what is it, sweetheart? She says, it's this shoebox. I'm going to slide this shoebox under our bed, and you need to promise you will never look in there. And I thought, now what is this new bride up to, this little rascal? I know what she's doing. She's keeping a journal about how wonderful I am now. That's what that is all about. So for 34 years and about six months, I honored that. We moved from place to place. That shoebox moved with us under the bed all the time. But about three months ago, she's off on a woman's retreat. There's nobody in the house but me, the dog, and the cat. The cat I do not trust at all but the dog is totally on my side. And so I couldn't stand it. I pulled out the shoebox, put it up on the bed, opened it up to look inside. Two chicken eggs and a stack of $100 bills. And I thought, that little rascal, what is this? So, when, you know, when she came home from the retreat, you can't act like you don't know that you've been sleeping on chicken eggs for 34 years. So I had to admit it to her. I said, Donna, I finally looked in the box. I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, well, Two chicken eggs, what's that about? And she says, oh, well, a lot of time has passed. You know, I realized after one year of being married to you that I was going to have to listen to you speak a lot. And so I thought, why don't I just kind of keep track on how you're doing, you know, kind of rate it a little bit. So she says, whenever you gave a horrible talk that just went nowhere, I mean, you just kind of stunk up the place, I would put a chicken egg in the box. And I said, really? I said, 
all these years and just two chicken eggs, sweetheart? I can think of a half a dozen times you put a, should have put a chicken egg in there. I said, there you go, putting me up on a pedestal again. I'm only human, sweetheart. I don't walk on water. What's with the $100 bill? She says, oh, whenever I got a dozen, I sold them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why she's not here. Who needs that? All I've said that's true so far is it's really good to be here. <laughs> Everything else is a complete lie. But from now on, nothing but the truth. So help me God. So let's do pray, so help me God. Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And surely among those who can't speak for themselves are children. And so, Lord, tonight I've learned that whenever we stop and we put a little child in our midst and we start talking about the little ones in your kingdom, that suddenly and mysteriously we're not alone anymore. The hosts of heaven lean forward, the hosts of hell rattle their chains in rage that a little one would be so honored as this. And so this is holy territory. Maybe that's why that scripture came out of nowhere. Dear Lord, you don't need my thoughts, you don't need my words tonight to do what you want to do in our hearts. But since we're gathered like this, I pray this. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so let's begin with a little pre-test. It is possible as we talk about children that we are all on the same page, that you are thinking exactly how I think. And uh, I don't want to waste your time. If we're all in accord on this, uh, then we can just dismiss and go have some tea. So you up for a little test from uh, Dr. Stafford here? Okay, you don't need a pencil. You don't need a paper. All you need is your imagination. If you pass this, we'll just dismiss and go on out. Imagine this story. The story is told of the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, who, as he was climbing into bed after an evangelistic service back in the 1850s, his wife Emma, who apparently didn't go to the, uh, to the meeting that night, she rolled over as he climbed in and said, well, how did it go tonight, Dwight? And he said, well, pretty good. Two and a half converts. Emma thought about it for a minute. She says, that's a, that's a cute way to say it. How old was the child? And he said, no, 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 Emma, it was two children and one adult. The children have their whole lives in front of them. It's the adult who's half gone. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid I heard a little too much laughter there. You pictured two grown-ups and a child, didn't you? So did I. I had worked at Compassion for 10 years when I heard that story, and that's what I thought too. I don't anymore, and I hope as we walk out of this tent, none of us will be able to think like that. D.L. Moody, by the way, who led a million people to Christ long before television and radio, just on street corners, said on his deathbed, if I had my life to live over again, I would dedicate it entirely in ministry to children. He was way out of step with the leaders, the theologians, the mission executives of his day, and sadly, 150 years later, he would still be out of step. In my book, Too Small to Ignore, I make the case that the ministry to children is the great omission of the great commission, a big missing piece of the great commission. And people have said, whoa, that seems, that seems a little strong, Wes. 
And I'm like, I, I don't think so. I think that's about where we are. And I remember a few years ago, I went to a, to a, a conference like this. We had about five or 600 people in attendance at that one. And it was evangelists from all across the world, evangelists gathered together for one purpose for two and a half days. And that was to strategize together about how to finally bring in the rest of the harvest. And so they had world-class who's who of evangelists from around the world for this. And they gave each speaker 15 minutes to make their case. They didn't want jokes. They didn't want any chicken eggs. They didn't want jokes. They didn't want uh, illustrations. They wanted nothing but battle tactics. How do we ultimately do this? And to make sure that they had everybody get through, they actually rang a little bell after 15 minutes. So it didn't matter if you were Billy Graham. After 15 minutes, the bell rang and off you went. And so as a new president to Compassion, I thought, you know, I lead a ministry to children. Maybe if I were to come in and be a part of this, I can learn something. What could we offer to bringing in this harvest as we wait for our Lord to return? So I went with my pad and paper in hand, ready to take notes on what's our part in all of this. And I listened to the first speaker, and he got done, and the bell rang, and I hadn't written anything down. I thought, hmm, I'm going to have to pay a little closer attention to the next one. I listened even more carefully, still nothing down. As time went on, I began to realize they're not talking about children here. Children are not in their vocabulary, they're not in their strategies, they're not in their priorities. And I began to say, okay, then maybe what I'll do, maybe you did this when you were a kid, when church got a little boring, you grabbed a pencil and you filled in all the O's in the bulletin. Did you do that? How many of you admit that that's what you did? That's the only way I got through a lot of church services when I was small. I was almost to that point at this conference after, after several speakers. But, um, but I thought, okay, maybe instead of that, I will just keep track of how many times they say child or children. That'll keep me interested. So I sat there with my pencil poised and I listened for two and a half days and I heard the word child or children 12 times in two and a half days. And never strategically, it was always in passing, every man, woman, and child. So I make a little mark on child. I remember a woman standing up and saying, we got to get the women of America to stop praying for their children and start praying for the world. I'm like, okay, she said children. I have to count that. <laughs> but that's not, what I was, that's not what I was looking for. It was, back, it was in the time when we were doing people groups and, and, and categories by gender, by handicap, by whatever. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I just learned in these two days how to lead a one-armed handicap uh, a woman cab driver, Islamic in Islamabad, but 12 times the word children, not even in their strategies. And I, I was getting more and more anxious as I was listening to this, and I looked ahead and I saw there was other comments. There was a session for other comments. And in spite of the bell ringing and people being driven off, of course the conference got behind schedule, and uh, they never got to that session. And it just tore me apart because what I wanted to do in that moment was jump up and say, people, excuse me for just a second, but would you close your eyes and would you picture this harvest that we are so passionate about bringing to Jesus Christ? Who are these people, these nations of the earth? Who are they? What do they actually look like? Close your eyes and picture them. Now, if in your mental image every other person is not a child, you don't even know what the harvest looks like because we are at a time when half of our world are now children. And missiologists tell us that 
85% of people who give their lives to Christ do it between the ages of 4 and 14 while they're children. Half the harvest, the prime time to be harvested, and they're not even in our strategies. Let's do a little, ma- let's do a little research right here. How many of you would say, yeah, that's me. I gave my life to Jesus Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. Would you raise your hands real high? Look at that. What a fascinating, fascinating thing that is. But do you know that it is a rare mission organization that spends more than 10% of its effort on reaching children for Christ, in spite of the fact, as D.O. Moody said, they got their whole lives to live in front of them. It's a rare church that spends more than 15% of its efforts on children, although every other person running around the halls of that church is, in fact, a child. Do you know that across the Ministry of Compassion, every single day, today, 400 children accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior at the knee of their pastor or in a Sunday school class somewhere? Yeah, praise God. It happened yesterday. It will happen again tomorrow. It happens every day of the year, 142,000 of our, 100 and, of our one and a half million children gave their lives to Christ last year alone. Now the job, as D.L. Moody knows, is to disciple them to reach their full potential. Do you realize that in the years that Compassion is becoming here to spring harvest, the number of children that you guys have sponsored in these last three years would fill this entire tent? How many of you are sponsors? You say, yeah, I'm... Yeah. I see a high correlation. Those of you who gave your lives to Christ are now reaching out to children. Fascinating thing to see. Being here at Spring Harvest has really uh, raised my, my joy level considerably. I've been out there where the, where the children's people are working. Do you know the heroes that are serving your children here? They do believe in children. They are discipling children. I have been overwhelmed with joy to see in this place, and if only the whole world was like this place, what a wonderful place it would be to be a child. But you've got to know how incredibly rare what's going on here is. So the question I've asked myself is how could we have gotten so far off base? How could we so miss the heart of God for children and such a strategic part of it bringing in the kingdom? And I thought, well, maybe maybe it's because there's too few children. If there were just more children, you know, lots of times little segments of society get overlooked and left behind. But I'm like, no, I don't think so. It's every other person in just about every nation. It is half of our world. It's not that there's not enough of them to get our attention. I thought, well, maybe they're unimportant, these little ones. Or at least maybe they're only half as important because they're only half our size. Maybe that's how it's working. I can tell you that my five-foot-one wife can make a case that it doesn't matter how big you are, size has nothing to do with importance. I've wondered, maybe it's just too complicated. Maybe we're unfamiliar with their plight. Maybe if more of us got PhDs in child development, then we could understand this, because it's just so complex. And as I look across this audience, I'm like, I don't think so. Everywhere I look here is an expert in child development. You all deserve honorary doctorates in child development, having done 18 years of field research. You were a child for 18 years. That's all you did was be a child. I have yet to meet anybody who wasn't either a child now or had been a child. And as he sang tonight, Paul sang, yeah, we've all been four. It's not like we need to know anything else. 
I've wondered, maybe God has been a little too silent about this. Maybe if he made it more clear in his scriptures how important children are in the kingdom of God, maybe then we would understand and they would be a higher priority. But I'll tell you, I go through the scriptures and I don't see evidence of that. Anytime a child is mentioned in scriptures, it's pretty clear that God is doing something pretty important. Probably something too important to entrust to one of us grown-ups. Like to kill a giant when the entire army is afraid of him. Only a boy named David could do that. Or to speak into the life of a high priest who was no longer able to hear the voice of God like little Samuel did. Or Jesus teaching in the temple when he was only 12 years old. Or the little boy who gave his five loaves and two fish to, uh, to feed 5,000 people. I don't know about you, us grown-ups thinking we would have said something like, I'm sorry you all forgot your lunch. I was a Boy Scout. I remembered mine. I was prepared. I'm sorry about you. Or we might have been a little more compassionate. We might have said, okay, you can have one fish and two loaves, and that's the best I can do. But a little boy, and only a little boy, would say, Jesus, if I gave you everything I had, would that be enough? And I am convinced that Jesus did that miracle for that little boy. Scripture is filled with admonitions about children and evidence that God not only loves children, he believes in children, and he uses them powerfully in his kingdom. I've wondered, well, could it be that we just don't love them? And I have for 35 years fought for children. I have traveled the world. I have yet to come across a single country that doesn't absolutely adore its children. The poorer the country, the more likely they are to have a proverb that says, children are a poor man's riches. So it's none of those reasons. I'm wondering, why are they a second-rate mandate? How can we leave them behind? I'm beginning to think maybe they're left behind because it's easy to leave them behind, easy to overlook them, easy to ignore them. They're powerless. They're uneducated. They have no political understanding. They are unorganized almost by definition. Just look at their rooms. It turns out every segment of society through history has learned how to fight for its own cause except children. Have you ever seen a children's protest march through the towns, the, the streets of your town? No, neither have I. But I'll tell you what, if they could speak for themselves, if they could fight for their own agenda, they would have something to say about our societies on this planet right now because they pay the price when our societies lose their heart. Everything that goes wrong in society spirals downward and it lands on the heads of our weakest, most vulnerable little citizens, no matter what it is. When there is famine and adults get hungry, it's the children who actually succumb and starve to death. When there is disease, adults get sick, but it is the little ones who die. Natural disasters, it's more children than it is grown-ups. Our sins of commission, doing the things that we know we should not be doing, children pay the greatest price for that as well. Pornography is a horrible thing, but at its sickest, and we all agree on this, it's child pornography. Prostitution at its worst is child prostitution. More children have been killed in our wars when we fight against each other than soldiers in the last 10 years. Do you know that there are 27 million slaves in the world today? More than there was at the time of Wilberforce. We don't buy slaves anymore on the basis of their strength and their ability to do hard work on the plantation. You know how they're sold now? 
They're sold on their weakness, their vulnerability. How easy might they be to exploit sexually? Most of those 27 million are children and young women in the sex trade business. Hell simply does not burn hot enough for what is going there. Our sins of commission. Also our sins of omission, though, not doing the things that we know we should do. Edmund Burke, one of your great British statesmen, once said, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I've discovered that we do nothing while our homes fall apart. We do nothing when divorce comes in. We do nothing when pornography finds its way into the bedrooms of our little children. And we cannot accept that. That is unacceptable. We are missing the chance to be the church in our society when we allow children to be a second-rate mandate. One of the first things we teach children in, in the United States, and I suspect you do it over here, the first day of school, we learn how to queue up. The sad thing in our world today is that children get very good at queuing up, but they're always at the end of the line. There's always somebody bigger, somebody stronger, somebody with more resources, more, more power that jumps in front and bullies them, and they continue to be at the end of the line paying the price for everything that goes wrong. They don't vote and therefore they don't get the attention of our politicians, they don't read the newspapers, they don't watch the evening news, or they might have something to say about this deficit that we are waiting for them to pay, or this planet that we are polluting, waiting for them to someday have to clean up. They don't tithe, or if they do, it's only a sticky handful of little coins, therefore it doesn't often get the attention of our church leaders and our mission executives. They own nothing to recruit their champions, if you, attend, if you go into the office of any politician anywhere, you can tell who's been paying their bills. You can tell it by the, by the plaques on their walls, the trophies, the honorary doctorates that they get from universities. You don't get an honorary doctorate from the local elementary school. I've traveled the world and I have never seen the Children's Hall of Fame where they champion their heroes. But they are the most generous of all parts of society. Any of you who are grandmas and grandpas, mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, you know the children are the most generous. They give you everything that they do have, don't they? They give us those hugs that require arms and legs, full python hugs that these little ones give us. They give us the squeeze on the hand that says, I love you. Have you had that? They give you the look in their eye, I'm frightened, but I trust you. And they give us the work of their hands, paper and string and sticks and glue, way, way too much glue. <laughs> but those of us who believe in children, that's enough, isn't it? So how can it be that they are a low priority? I'll tell you why. I believe, and this is why I feel compelled to pray whenever I speak about children, I believe that while they may be unimportant in our governments and unimportant in our church priorities, they are hugely important to the two most powerful entities in all the universe, the hosts of hell and the hosts of heaven. Both know the heart of God. Both know the place of children in the kingdom of God. We're told that the, the hosts of heaven rise up and cheer when one child enters into the kingdom. Imagine 400 cheers a day just from the ministry of compassion. 
But we also know that Satan has only one thing on his mind, and that is breaking the heart of God. He will do anything to break the heart of God. I believe he witnessed creation. I believe he got all the way to day six before he found the chink in God's armor. Light and dark, that's good. Wet and dry, that's good. Plants, animals, that's good. But on day six, God made man. He didn't just speak him into existence. He fashioned him out of the dust with his own hands. And he breathed into him his own spirit. And Satan was off watching that, and he said, "Mm mm-hmm, there it is. If I want to break God's heart, I attack what he loves most, mankind. And Satan's not stupid. He then asked surely, when's the best time to attack? And he must have concluded, the sooner the better. And I maintain that's one of the reasons why the womb is the most dangerous place on our earth to be a child, either through poverty, and Satan will use that if he needs it, or through comfort or convenience. Satan will use that if he needs it, whatever it takes to separate us from God. And again, children pay the greatest price. You look all through history and you can find that every major movement throughout history of people have understood the importance of influencing and educating children, the next generation, except mysteriously us who are Christians. Hitler understood this. Ten years before the first shot was ever fired in World War II, he had built the Hitler Youth Movement. He understood the importance of the next generation. Communism understands it. Mormons have understood this. Islam clearly understands this. The Taliban have understood and mobilized this. Al-Qaeda understands this and even mobilizes little children to be suicide bombers. Rwanda understood this, and that's why most of those killed in that great genocide were little children. There's a battle raging over our head. This is one of the reasons why I am thrilled to be able to come to Spring Harvest, one of the reasons why I'm delighted to see how many of you are reaching out and sponsoring children with compassion, because you are exactly the kind of people we need to sponsor our children. More important than the money that you give, 21 pounds a month, that's huge, and we are great stewards of that. But more important than that is your prayers for these little children. More important than that is is the letters that you write to help us disciple these little children. This is the perfect place for compassion children to find a loving sponsor because you are men and women of God. You are growing in your discipleship. You are asking yourself, how am I supposed to live out my faith in this hurting world? And I'm thrilled, grateful for those of you who are doing this. By the way, across the United Kingdom, the number of you who are sponsoring children would fill up Wembley Stadium to the top. 90,000 children through the UK people. So as you can imagine, this is my cause. I have fought for this for 35 years. People watch me and they say, Wes, when are you going to run out of energy? When, when, when will the passion fade? How long can you keep speaking and fighting for children? That's why, that's why I think when I stand up here to, to speak, you know, Ruth, Scripture comes out of nowhere, unplanned. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I have fought like this for a long time. And people have said, what is it? What is it about children that has so gripped your heart? And I'm going to tell you very quickly this evening the story of how it all came about. It all came about, actually, when I was a little child. I was raised the son of missionary parents in a little African village in the Ivory Coast of West Africa. My sister and I were the only white children for a day's drive in any direction. I loved the poor. When I work with the poor, when I talk about the poor, even subtly, I don't think downward. I think upward. 
Because everything I need to know to lead Compassion's worldwide ministry, I learned from the poor in that little village. I learned about love. I learned about joy. I learned about hope. I learned about how to give and how to receive. I learned that if God made you strong, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are weak. And if God made you brave, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are frightened. They had a saying in my village, it takes the whole village to raise the children. And I was one of the lucky little children in that village that got to be raised by a whole tribe of African people. I never fell down as a little boy without some African woman swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears, and sending me on my way. Likewise, I didn't get away with a whole lot of mischief because I stood out. I remember the, I remember the chief of our village one time saying, you know, the goats are getting kind of skinny, and it's not because we're in a drought, it's because the little boys are chasing them around. And in the swirling red dust, I don't know who all the culprits are, but I know this, the little white boy is one of them. <laughs> so I prayed every night as a little boy, dear Lord, please, when I wake up in the morning, let my skin be black like all of my friends. And that would be the first thing I would check. Ah, still white, but maybe tomorrow. The poor shaped my heart. I learned what they taught their children. I learned how to hunt. I learned how to fish. One of the great things of growing up in a poor village is even though you're small, if you're big enough, you can do important things. One of the jobs of us little boys in this village was to protect our cornfields from the marauding bands of baboons. Baboons are not cute little monkeys, people. They're big and mean with fangs like this. And it was the job of us little boys when I was five years old to keep the baboons from destroying our cornfield. In a single night, uh, baboons could, could strip an entire area like this. And what we used was slings to do this. All of us little boys had slings. We were deadly accurate with the slings. It's good to be good at something, by the way. This is all I'm really good at. When I was small, if I could see it and the sling could go that far, I could pretty well hit it. So what us boys would do is we'd look around, we'd find, we'd find rocks everywhere we were looking. We would set up a stand over the top of the corn and we would just watch for the baboons. And we would have a decision, do we want to shoot a warning shot over here? Or do we want to wait until they're actually in our field? Now we had another choice. Do you want to bounce a rock off their rump and give them a PhD on why you don't steal our corn? Or do you just want to hit them on the head and have them for lunch? <laughs> so what we did was this. David, the cameraman back there, you are not a safe man. In fact, in fact, the only safe people around here are those of you in the chalets watching this on television. This is not a rock, but this is a marshmallow, and it looks very similar. David, David could not have killed Goliath with a marshmallow. I'm just, I'm just saying. You ready, David? Whoa! <laughs> Like I say, it's good to be good at something. My mother, I'll never forget, teaching us Sunday school class under a mango tree, went on and on and on to us little boys about David and Goliath. And she was saying, this is a story about a little boy and a lot of faith. And us little boys are sitting there, all marksmen, we're thinking, we don't think so. We think that's the story of a very stupid giant who let a little boy with one of these get that close. And I used to lie in bed at night thinking, I could have done that. He's nine foot tall. He's got a forehead this big. He's just standing there. I could have done that. 
When we understood he was nine feet tall, we went and found a palm tree and we shinnied up to the nine foot mark and we cut out with a machete a wedge the size of his forehead. And us little kids, we just killed Goliath all day long. It, it got so easy, it wasn't fair to stand still. You had to do it while you were running. And I remember the day the tree went, <laughs> couldn't take another rock. It was a great place to be a little boy other than poverty. And it was in the midst of this place that I understood poverty and it broke my heart. You know, I think I became Compassion's president when I was six years old. By the way, any time you see a little child go by, you need to be like a Builder Bob out here. Have you seen Builder Bob? You need to put your hard hat on. You need to put your tool belt on. You surely need your steel-toed boots because you are in a construction zone. And you need to ask yourself, what is God building here? And is there anything I can do to advance it? When I was a little boy, I grew up in this village, and poverty attacked me first. I remember how desperately poor we were. We were vulnerable to everything around us. We had no electricity. Uh, we had uh, no running water, no, no plumbing. Uh, nobody did, not us, not the people in the village. And so we were vulnerable to anything that goes wrong. I remember when I was six, an epidemic of measles swept through our village. Measles that should keep you out of school for a few days. But because we were already weak from poverty, it was a killer. And in the span of uh, two weeks, one out of every four of my boyhood friends died of measles, some of them right in my arms. And I will never forget running to my father and saying, Papa, when do you think it'll be my turn? And he said, your turn to what, son? I said, my turn to die, Papa. All my friends are dying. When do you think I'll die? And I will never forget that moment because he said, roll up your sleeve. And I said, okay. And he says, you see those little scratches on your arm? Those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came here so you wouldn't get this disease. And in the blur of my tears in that moment, it hit me how unfair the world is. And I believe I became Compassion's president when I stammered, Papa, that's not fair. Why don't all of my friends have scratches on their arms? Imagine my joy to be able to serve you by putting scratches on the arms of tens of thousands of children every year now to save them from these kind of diseases. In the fullness of time, I could look back and say, God was there that whole time. We buried children the same day they died. We had no choice. There was no electricity, no embalming. And so the village would gather together uh, in the evening, the very day the child died, to celebrate the child's life. I had to go to bed early because uh, I was one of the younger ones, but I would lie in my cot and I would listen. The drums didn't just do rhythms. That's how we spoke from village to village. And I would lie in, the, in my cot and I would listen to the drums tell the story of my little friends. And I used to cry myself to sleep. My eyes would fill with tears. My ear was filled with tears. It would spill onto my pillow. Eventually I would drift to sleep, but a few days later it would be another friend. When I was 15 and came to America to live, half of the children that I was growing up with had died. And I discovered that the enemy was poverty. And I determined I am fighting back against poverty. And that's what I have done with my entire life. When I came to New York, I remember when I ran into my first grocery store. 
the very first day in America when I was 15 years old. People were walking down the sidewalks with bags of brown paper bags and being a pretty good hunter, I backtracked them. Where's that coming from? And that's where I discovered my first grocery store. I remember walking inside and seeing all of this food and thinking, there's plenty of food. And over here was a pharmacy right next door. And I looked in there and I realized there's plenty of medicine. And my heart broke as a tiny little skinny 15-year-old. And I, and I went outside, I sat on the curb, and I just cried and cried and cried. A whole childhood of sorrow that I now realize didn't need to happen. It was New York City, so nobody so much as stopped to ask, are you okay? And after a while, I ran out of tears, and I began watching these people, and I got more and more angry. I was like, what is wrong with you people? You have all of this, and you don't care. And I went through a rage during my high school years where I just couldn't wait to get back to my village. Anybody who had and didn't care was my enemy by definition until I had lived in America long enough, years all the way through high school and college. And I discovered these are amazing people. They're very generous people. The issue isn't that they don't care. The issue is that they don't know. And when they know, they care. And I realized at age 15, somehow I was going to have to bridge these two worlds. I knew the language. I knew the cultures at both ends of this bridge. Somehow I was going to have to bring them together. I thought maybe I have to be an ambassador or something. And then I stumbled onto the Ministry of Compassion and discovered that's all they do is bring these two worlds together. These little children in these poverty-stricken villages with all of these precious values need our financial resources to survive and to reach their potential. But you know what? We need them. We need their prayers, their hope, their joy. So that's my passion. That's what I have fought for all of my life. That's why I'm delighted to be here with you. And the question I have for you tonight is, so what's your cause? What have you got in your life that moves your heart deeply? What have you got that makes your heart pound? What have you got that can make you cry tears in 30 seconds. Either tears of sorrow at the need that needs to be addressed, the heartache, the aching, or, or tears of joy at the victories. I challenge you tonight, if you don't have a cause that's bigger than you, outside of you, that can move you that deeply with that level of passion, please don't live like that. We don't have time for you to live like that. It doesn't have to be my cause, but it is the cause that God has put in your hearts, has fashioned you for years and years and years. Some of you are saying with a sad feeling in your heart, I used to be like that. I used to have that kind of passion. I don't think I do anymore. I want to come back fully, fully alive. And I challenge you tonight, let's do this. We don't have time for you to be living your life stuck in second gear. We need to be all out because we don't have that much time. You understand that this world is not home, don't you? We belong to a different kingdom. We listen carefully. We hear a different drummer. We march to a different beat. And our kingdom is exactly upside down from the kingdom in which we find ourselves right now. All of the priorities are different. The first are, in fact, last, and the last are first. The weak are strong. And it's often the strong who are weak. The poor are rich, and it's often the rich who are poor. I would maintain the little are big. Surrender is what leads to victory. It's not about outward appearance. It's about the heart. Completely upside-down kingdom in which we find ourselves, and we're just camping here. Do not get too comfortable down here. 
How are we supposed to live while we wait for that trumpet blast? Well, um, Romans 12.2 tells us what it is. Be not conformed to this world and its culture, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ need to be changed from the inside out. We need to think differently. We need to see differently. We need to feel differently. We need to act differently. We need to be, say, do differently than the people around us because of who we are and the kingdom that we belong to. And so my prayer for you is the same as the prayer has been for me all of this time as I have fought for my cause, that you will find your purpose. You will find why God made you, why your heart is, why your skills are the way they are, and that you will pour yourself into it, your time, your talent, your treasure, into the cause that God has placed on your heart. For myself, I can't wait for that trumpet blast. We're told in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when we least expect it, a sudden a trumpet blast. The sky is going to open up and we're going to go home, finally, finally home, where there is no sickness, no sorrow, no death, not even any tears. And I long for that day. I long to run into the arms of my Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, exhausted. I long to, let, to, to fall into his arms panting with exhaustion, and I long for him to wipe the tears from my eyes. I've shed way too many tears for one lifetime, but my prayer is also that he will wipe the tears from my eyes, but also take a good look at me and realize, I need to also wipe the sweat from your brow, Wes, because you found your cause, you lived your cause, you fought for injustice, you spoke up for the little ones, you spoke up for those who can't speak for themselves, and you did it with all your strength and all your energy and all your passion until you were suddenly and wonderfully interrupted by heaven. May that be your life, your prayer. And I say this in Jesus' name. Amen.